In America and much of the world today, economic policies are bundled together. One team cheers on lower regulation and a smaller safety net, while the other aims for higher spending and more regulation. Sam Hammond of the Niskanen Center, a think tank in D.C., wrote a recent paper called The Free Market Welfare State. In it, he argues that there's a symbiotic relationship between his definition of market-friendly policies and a strong welfare state. That seems to contradict our assumption that the two philosophies can't coexist. This bundling of economic policies is so ingrained in our minds, but it doesn't have to be the case. Uh, well, there's a lot of ways that people have weird bundlings, like the you know the Democratic Party is the uh, pro-choice party, but it's also the currently anti-Russia party, but there's nothing connecting those two things. It just happens that they fall together. Um, in this case, my thesis is that uh, people sort of reach for rules of thumb or heuristics when they're deciding um, what kind of ideology they fall in line with, and uh, the one that predominates, predominates the U.S. politics, at least, and, pro and probably in some ways politics around the world, is this sort of pro-government pro or anti-government um, spectrum. Uh, and so I describe it in, in the paper as, you know, it's similar to uh, different kinds of mood affiliation. So, like, people are sometimes pro-environment or anti-environment, anti um, where, whereas, you know, you could separate out the issues of carbon taxation and, and recycling and other forms of pollution as totally being separate issues. Uh, I sort of do the same thing. I think if you break out what this, the state does, it doesn't necessarily make sense to lump together re redistributive policies with other forms of uh, government intervention like regulation, and particularly ad hoc regulation. So this is another, another distinction that sort of gets lost in the midst, uh, the distinction between sort of inter intervention per se or intervention along some rules-based general framework. Uh, that was something that, you know, uh, libertarian economists like Hayek talked a lot about, uh, but gets lost in the midst of just being anti-government per se. So in the case of the free market welfare state, what I'm, what, what I'm proposing is that there is this like substitution between tax and spend and regulation. So there's many issues in the economy that uh, are genuine issues of economic security, for example, and there's often multiple ways to address them. One, one way is to regulate the, the economic anxiety of existence. So if we had trade protection, we wouldn't have anyone worried about their job being displaced by trade. That's one way of dealing with that economic anxiety. Another way is to have a safety net. And in that sense, they're actually not just, not, it's not just that they're inappropriate to be lumped together. Uh, they're in some ways uh, alternatives. So then there's this false dichotomy that we often fall into of pro-government and anti-government thinking when it comes to economic policies. Rankings from places like the Heritage Foundation or the Fraser Institute that try to measure the level of economic freedom include the level of government spending, which in an important sense has very little to do with economic freedom. And for someone like Sam, this isn't exactly the kind of economic freedom that is important to growth or starting a business. Right. So the, I use the Heritage Foundation's data set. And the thing with their data set is I think they have four sub-indicators. So they have one big composite indicator called economic freedom, and they update it every year and they do all... You know, they do like 180 countries. Uh, so first of all, I zero in on the OECD because, I, I, you know, you get into bigger issues when you start looking uh, at emerging uh, markets and stuff like that. Um, and then I, you know, I look at how they subdivide and, yeah, they have these four different categories. I believe they are regulatory efficiency, which means I think uses the uh, doing business index by the World Bank, which is like how easy it is to start a business. And they have a openness indicator, which I think... Uh, combines measures of tariffs and other trade protections. And then they have a rule of law indicator, which is like everything that falls under rule of law, like strength of property rights, 
political corruption, stuff like that. And then they have this fourth indicator, which is essentially just this, the, the share of government as a percent of GDP, which is they actually kind of double count it because they look at uh, taxes and spending. And since those are pretty highly correlated, it's a double whammy if you have a big government. And so they combine all four of those indicators, the size of government, rule of law, regulatory efficiency, and openness to come up with this one freedom index. And But because they, all the data, is, they release it, I, you're able to you know, play around with the data how you want. So what I did is I went in and I just stripped out the size of government part because there have been other uh, you know, more rigorous studies of this looking at how the different components correlate with one another. And if, you're, if you think you're measuring some abstract thing called freedom, you'd expect all these sub indicators to sort of point in the same direction. But in fact, ironically, the size of government indicator and particularly the size of social transfers correlates positively with, with the, the other in indicators of freedom. Uh, so in some ways, they're actually worsening their index by including the size of government. And so what I did is I, I stripped that out and I recombined uh, the other three indicators into a new one that, just, that I, I sort of call it like a measure of interventionism because that's what we're really looking at. That's what really matters too from the perspective of like at a philosophical level, what, what freedom means in the, in the sort of libertarian sense is, you know, can I do X? I want to do X. Is anyone stopping me? Um, be like, you know, having a, a, a safety net is not stopping you from doing X, but having a regulation banning you from doing X is. And then, then I sort of uh, combine that with an OECD measure of uh, uh, social protection. And I think the, the measure that I use is, uh, income support. So as like a percent of median of the median in, in the country. So, you know, if, the, if what, what it's basically looking at is what's the minimum level of income that a person can fall given the safety net uh, in that country. And then if you compare the two, there's actually <laughs> a really robust correlation between large uh, safety nets and uh, economic freedom, meaning rule of law, trade openness and efficient regulation. A lot of economic conservatives tend to think that the bundling of low regulation and low spending is necessary, that high social spending can undermine the efficiency of markets and is difficult to coexist with economic freedom. This correlation Sam found not only debunks that, but even suggests that a generous welfare state can reinforce and strengthen markets. His paper includes a histogram showing a strong correlation between the level of income transfers in a country and its level of economic freedom, as he defines it. Yeah, and actually, uh, it, the correlation still exists if you just do the straight-up heritage index and don't change it at all. It's just appropriate to take out uh, social spending because the other, the dependent variable is social spending. So if you're regressing social spending on social spending, you're going to get a correlation that's spurious, right? But how easy is it to quantify something like economic freedom or the ease of doing business? Writer Matt Brunig wrote a post recently responding to Sam's paper, questioning the accuracy of a lot of these metrics. Well, you know, part of my point is using uh, the Heritage Index and taking it at face value because it's a conservative slash libertarian organization saying they're measuring the thing they care about. And just taking that, that them for at their word, you know, part of, my, part of the rhetorical point of my paper is, look, even accepting your index, the thing you care about correlates with the larger so social safety net. Um, so there's that point, which I think kind of obviates any more of the technical points. The second point is, if I recall correctly, Matt's post was mainly critiquing. So the, the, the three indicators I mentioned, the regulatory efficiency indicator is, I think, by and large, basically made up of the World Bank's doing business index. 
and every every year, every few years, the World Bank does this doing business report, um, and it's all the countries of the world. And yes, they go in, and they, they I think there's a great Econ Talk episode actually with the person who used to run it. He he since retired and got the job got t- taken over, but the guy who used to do the world uh, the doing business index, and he talks to Russ Roberts in detail about how that thing is constructed. Um, and it is pretty amazing. They they have people on the ground going into these different places and trying to start a business and seeing how hard it is. And it's a combination of qualitative and quantitative. So uh, there's lots of ways to critique it. Uh, first of all, last year, there was a big scandal. And Paul Romer had to resign, I believe, because it seemed like they were putting their, their uh, fingers on the scale for a few countries. Uh, so that's a problem. The second The second issue is... For th- other things that matter, like economic growth, it's not clear that doing business indicators are that predictive. And that's partly because, like, like to, to the point Matt was raising, you know, how quickly you can uh, start a business if it's uh, 30 minutes versus three days, it's not going to make a big uh, impact on your growth statistics. So, but that said, there is more to the doing business index than just how fast it takes to start an LLC. It has a more more to do with, especially in developing countries, with the stuff Fernando de Soto has talked about, about like the importance of titling systems and property rights. And there are many countries, and, th- and this is a separate issue, but this gets into the, the bigger problem with the doing business index, because you're trying to compare rich countries with poor countries where the, the problems in those countries are vastly different. And, you know, there are developing countries where uh, to start a business, you have to, you know, bribe 10 officials. It takes six months, and then the whole thing's expropriated at the end of the day. <laughs> so that is clearly a big barrier to growth, and it's a uh, it's a hindrance to, uh, you know, individual autonomy and freedom. The OECD Sam mentioned before is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a group of 36 countries that are mostly high income. A benefit of only looking at OECD countries like Sam does is that a lot of those hard-to-quantify aspects of institutions are a bit more normalized. The thing that's doing most of the work is the openness metric. And and the openness and sort of like exposure to trade shocks and exposure to just uh, economic shocks more generally from technology. Uh, so I don't think that like, like it, I can tell you a convincing story about why a safety net is relevant to the public support for free trade. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of um, other papers on this thing called the compensation hypothesis, which says that one of the reasons countries like the Scandinavian countries have big welfare states is because they they are incredibly open to trade, and they need, you know, compensatory schemes to to uh, to transfer from the winners of trade to the losers of trade and, and make sure everything remains positive. Some I can't tell a similar story for why you know a safety net helps. If you know you're, you can make an LLC in in one day versus ten days. It doesn't have as direct a like link, but it does matter. The regulatory stuff does matter to the extent that like if we can think about deregulation as having some short-term winners and losers, uh, then it has effects similar to how we think about trade. And there are many areas of the economy where they're regulated because there are perceived risks and perceived uh, uncertainties that are essentially being insured against indirectly through rules. Um, and the, th- the problem with rules is they're blunt and they cover all 
uh, all cases as opposed to having the flexibility of letting someone do, you know, uh, the flexibility of, uh, of a, a transfer. It's a similar point that Coase made in his uh, uh, papers on uh, social cost. There, there's, for any kind of regulation, you can think of it in terms of uh, an implicit sort of bargain between the winners and losers. Like, you know, in his example, it was a, a, the, a fire being started by a train track running by a, a wheat field. Um, you could ban that. You could say you can't, you know, run train tracks across the wheat field, or you could have the the train company compensate the wheat field, right? And so for there, there's many different parts of the economy where uh, transfers are sort of parsimonious substitutes for regulation in the same way. Now, I don't posit that there's the same sort of like uh, political economy story where where you know the existence of large transfers you know takes away the demand for those regulations but i think it's plausible right so i think if you had a more robust social welfare state in the united states you wouldn't see quite the same demand for occupational licensing and you wouldn't see quite the same demand for trade protectionism or um reviving the coal industry or any any of these other recent uh examples of interventionism the idea that high economic freedom can lead to high social welfare spending is an interesting one it can suggest, to paraphrase Sam's colleague Will Wilkinson, that countries need to be good capitalists in order to achieve their socialist goals. But Sam's paper goes further than just observing this as a correlation. He thinks there are some reinforcing mechanisms at play. Well, it could just be a correlation, and um, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying my argument's dispositive. It's really hard to uh, create theories about stylized facts about like countries, uh, <laughs> because countries are so heterogeneous and so, you know. The, the, the political dynamics within internal to each country can vary dramatically. But, you know, we do see trends. Um, you know, the most recent populist uh, uprising, what do you want to call it, the wave of populism, is a, is a global phenomenon. There are some exceptions, but it seems like whatever, you know, omitted variable is causing all these, you know, right-wing populist people to, <laughs> to rise up in their various countries have some sort of common cause. It could be the Great Recession, Right. It could be, uh, uh, you know, the work on the China shock that the, the import shock from China affected the United States, but also affected Germany and, and the UK and multiple other countries. So there are these like there are these big correlated events happening. And you it, it, it's useful to think about like how uh, what, what's a story we can tell that's actually plausible and actually explains multiple cases. And the thing I like about the you know, the compensation hypothesis or the idea that the globalization begets larger welfare states as a kind of result of needing to compensate losers is is there are examples where countries do do that. And in countries like Scandinavia, they have good governments that respond to people to people's demands for insurance in a in a kind of efficient way. And but then there are countries that don't <laughs> that have different political systems and don't follow through and Instead, those demands for uh, insurance get translated into re-regulation. And so what you end up with is a less free economy, but also a more closed economy and also one with, uh, with small transfers. And so it's a nice story because it can explain how, how different regimes can be pulled to either end depending on what trajectory they take. In this analysis, if a country that is economically free is exposed to an economic shock like 
Chinese competition or the rise of robots taking jobs, its citizens will naturally seek something to soften the blow. If the country doesn't have a safety net to do this, its citizens will look for policy solutions that protect them from these losses ex ante. This means more upfront regulation or other policies that can stifle growth. In fact, there's one country that's a pretty big outlier in our correlation that fits this description, the United States. So is the U.S. on a path towards less economic freedom as a way to compensate for its cheap welfare spending? I mean, that's the, that's the trajectory of this administration. They're, they're trying their damnedest to uh, roll back Obamacare and um, uh, strengthen or, you know, increase eligibility rules for Medicaid and food stamps and stuff of, of that nature. And then on top of that, you have a president that is essentially, you know, I think just today they filed five new uh, five new uh, legal claims against five different countries in the, in the WTO accusing them of, uh, you know, unfair trade. And so this is potentially je jeopardizing the global trading system. The, the difference with the U.S., there's, you know, there's several differences with the U.S. of other countries that make it an outlier. Number one, um, historically, the U.S. is the biggest economy in the world. And not until China comes along do you really have a formidable trading partner that can just sort of overnight have a, you know, a big enough trade shock to really meaningfully displace jobs in your, in your country. And, and because the U.S. is so big, you can have smaller shocks affect regions and there could be a regional reactions, but it doesn't necessarily translate into the national politics. The U.S. also has somewhat of an exceptional ethos of individualism and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But for the recent economic displacement in the U.S. that led to Trump's rise, would higher social spending really have stopped it? Could West Virginia coal country or Rust Belt manufacturing really be propped up by better unemployment insurance? Right. I mean, it just so happens that this most recent trade shock happened to hit a lot of swing states. <laughs> and so by, 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 by that mechanism became a national issue because they, they were the marginal, decisive, they were the, the decisive voters and Trump's, you know, seems to want to, in some sense, pay them back for you know, for as being his base of support. But, um, but yeah, you know, I look at income transfers and when I, when I do the correlation, but there's more to free market welfare state than just income transfers. It, it is in some way providing economic security, whatever that means. And so in the case of, you know, Denmark, which I look at pretty closely, um, it's not just that they, they, it's not just when you're fired that you keep 90% of your income. That's the wage replacement and their unemployment insurance. It's that, you are also almost immediately given supports for job search and retraining. And it's kind of astounding because in Denmark, the job mobility rate is, is one in five Danes switch jobs every year, which is you know 20% of your economy quitting and changing jobs every year is uh, pretty remarkable. Um, and they don't have a big backlash to that. Uh, and it's actually sort of just comes naturally. They have at-will employment. You can just be hired and fired. So, it, you know, the, the, the issue with West Virginia coal jobs is not just that they have an identity, it's that they are geographically bounded, right? And so uh, the U.S., part of what makes the U.S. predicament kind of unique is you have uh, these rural pockets of rural, underdeveloped, um, declining regions. And uh, it really calls for more than just income supports to placate people. It, it calls for either Either you're going to bite the bullet and, and, and incentivize people to search for jobs outside of their locality, uh, or you're going to have to do some kind of place-based investment. And all, and all that is much trickier. Uh, that's all much more fraught and 
full of political economic problems because place-based policies can often just postpone a, a region's decline and, and draw out the pain. This gets back to the important idea that policies that are typically bundled together need not be so. Workers in Denmark can easily be fired, and this provides incredible labor market flexibility. The protection for workers, then, doesn't come in the form of lengthy processes for dismissal. It comes in the form of softening the pain when someone is let go. All right, yeah. In Denmark, they call it flex security, flexible security. And um, it, does, it, it, is, it does kind of typify what I mean when I talk about the free market welfare state. It's, it's literally a system that, you would design, that, that was designed to, be, you know, to reconcile the, the conflicting interests of labor and capital. That you know, labor wanted a certain level of protection and economic security, and capital wanted to be able to, you know, move investments towards most productive, and to hire and fire at will. And so they came to this compromise. Whereas you know, you look at more what I what I sort of label in the paper as like the reactionary model is, you know, you said southern Italy and Greece, where you have family-run firms, where you know you you spend a generation in the same business, and uh, nothing really changes decade over decade. Um, but at the same time, there's not like a lot of there's not there's not like this abstracted safety net that's like separate from the firm or separate from uh, your union or something like that. So that that that's a big that's a big distinction. And what and one reason why um, I think uh, the free market welfare state perspective sort of calls for more universalistic programs, ones that sort of pull away from particular firms or particular industries or sort of the family-run model. Uh, because you have to have something that's relatively detached from any particular market structure. Because the goal, of course, is to let those market structures be flexible and to go away if they're no longer um, productive. To a lot of people, markets themselves are the problem. This paper only looks at redistribution, but could the inherent power structure in a market economy be what's keeping wages down? We all know that a market with one seller is called a monopoly, and that's higher prices with lower supply. But when you have only one buyer in a market, that's called a monopsony. And if only one or few companies are the buyers of labor in a local market, wages will be pushed down. My personal view, and I don't write about this in the paper, is that a lot of this recent research is overrated, especially the stuff on monopsony. So, um, you know, there's been a host of papers suggesting that uh, monopsony, especially, especially in small towns, is holding down workers' wages. Um, that that may be the case in some kind of static way, but those papers don't, don't do anything to 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 prove that monopsony has been getting worse um, over time, or that, that that it's a major cause of like the secular slowdown in wages. The the way you, the way wages grow long run is obviously improvements in productivity, and I I think it's makes more sense to look at the fact that productivity is stagnating and and uh, attribute low wage growth to that. You know, and a lot, of, a lot of these issues will don't you know are coming up now because we are in a period of relative stagnation, and people search for answers to that. And they, you know, they don't they they see CEOs making hundreds of thousands of dollars and and see that as an inequity, even though even though like we can count the billionaires on a, on our hands and toes. Uh, because the the top one percent is really not um, really it's like if you could you could redistribute all the income from the top one percent it wouldn't really budge the uh, bottom ninety nine. Now it's important to realize that economic policy involves many more dimensions than just left and right. What should we regulate and how should we do it? 
What industries should have government ownership? How should we use the tax system to redistribute resources? These are all important questions, but they're separate, and they don't need to have their answers packaged together. And there's a takeaway for both sides of the political spectrum here. For conservatives, it's important to see that social spending doesn't undermine economic growth and can even strengthen economic freedom. And for progressives wanting more regulation, economic freedom can actually be a better way to a strong safety net. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Compernal at Radio Free Jerome Studios in Long Island City, New York. My guest today was Sam Hammond of the Niskanen Center. To read Sam's paper, go to niskanen.org. Follow Upset Patterns on Twitter at Upset Patterns and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.